is life too easy for us in many parts of North America? I couldn't agree more. Comfort is, yeah, we're, it's a huge problem. That's all kids want. They want to be comfortable. And, you know, they thought the apples were there for people to eat, and that was the only reason. So that made us realize we have to incorporate nature a lot more into our curriculum. One of the big parts of Project Stream was securing the funding for field trips, which we got. And now it's about now that we can do it, let's take these kids out into the community. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Be able to take their kids out and do Project Stream activities. You know, we want to get fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, and eighth graders all involved learning outside because one of the things that we saw from our survey is kids said, yes, I wish I did this earlier. I wish I had more experiences like this. And I think that is just telling of, you know, where we need to go. What's gonna drive you? What's gonna inspire you? When a group of Ohio-based high school students arrives at a rustic field station in Costa Rica, they're probably feeling a bit out of their comfort zone. Just a few years ago, many of these same students felt a similar feeling, but back home at their local creek. Why is that? Much of this has to do with the innovative approach that 8th grade science teachers Laura Frost and Scott Lenhart use with their students at Boardman Glenwood Junior High School. Laura and Scott chatted with Ian about how pushing students beyond the familiar can happen both in distant travel as well as through inquiry-based learning in their own community. You just returned from a 10-day trip to Costa Rica, where some of your former students, who are now in high school, got to work directly with conservation researchers and volunteers. Connecting students with professionals in the conservation field is a big part of your work. So how did the students react to this experience in Costa Rica? Yeah, so uh, when we took our trip this year, we were um, one of the first student groups to be back at the turtle stations on the Caribbean side. And we got to do some turtle patrols uh, where the students went out with the researchers um, several hours each night. And when we finished, you know, the researchers were telling us, you know, how thankful we were to finally have a group back because it alleviated some of the people would get the night off. Actually, they haven't had a night off in a year and a half. And the, and the kids are like, they do this every night. They were just blown away to the fact that these people go out there every night rain or shine, and they're, you know, patrolling the beach looking for nesting sea turtles. Is it leatherbacks? Yes, mostly. Um, yeah, they do some get greens. the occasional green turtle there, but mostly leatherbacks is what we were looking for. Yeah, and all on the Caribbean side? On the Caribbean side, yes. Um, I think the kids, too, realized how important we were not just to be there helping them, but also the depth and dedication it takes to be this kind of researcher that they have to be out there every single night. And, you know, it, you might get a turtle at 2 a.m. 
then you might get another turtle and you might get another turtle and you might be awake till you know four or five and that's nature you can't predict it so they really um, enjoyed the work with the researchers oh absolutely and costa rica is such a great place for experiencing that and there's so much citizen science that goes on uh, how many students were you down there with we only had five this year. Um, originally, this trip was scheduled for 2020. Um, <laughs> and so everything, yeah, everything that happened, uh, we originally had 21 students and then we postponed the trip. And then, you know, kind of by the time it was time to go, it, it, it kind of dwindled down and down until we were left with five, but five willing kids that we went with. So these are former students of yours that you've taught in middle school. They're now into high school. And Costa Rica is pretty different from Ohio, needless to say. I live in southern Ontario, which bears a lot of similarities to Ohio, somewhat different forest type, but it still wouldn't really feel that different from home for me to travel to Ohio. Whereas going to Costa Rica, of course, you're much closer to the, to the equator. You're in the tropical zone. It's totally different. So how do you make conservation in Costa Rica relevant to a student from Northeastern North America? Sometimes it's simple things as seeing trash or we could see something in the ocean, something that a familiar piece of trash um, and making that connection. When, when we talk about just the lifestyle overall down there, um, you see a lot more pedestrians, a lot more bike riders, a lot more, you know, mm. and things that a lot of people around here are not willing to do. And so it's kind of that that hard, you know, you're down there in what they consider an exotic place and they feel like there's things to protect there. But, you know, it's also making that connection like, hey, we have things here we need to protect, too. But ultimately, it's everyone's issue. This is a, a global, a global issue. You know, everyone's actions are impacting everyone else's. Were there any moments during the trip itself where the pieces really seemed to fit? They could really connect the dots and they're like, wow, yeah, this does matter. And it matters not just right here in this land where I'm standing. This matters back home. This matters everywhere. We definitely see a lot of different things and everybody kind of takes away something differently from Costa Rica, I think. You know, not every kid's going to grow up to be a sea turtle researcher, but they internalize everything differently. And one thing that always hits me is when we're just driving through the country and you just see acres and acres and acres of banana plantation or yeah. pineapple planting and we go this is where most of our pineapples and bananas come from but you see the impact when it's deforestation yeah. that rainforest is cut down and as far as you can see is banana trees and we kind of i always go is it worth it are me getting bananas worth it you know and saying is it Maybe not. Maybe it's not worth that effort just to have a banana if it's destroying all of this rainforest that used to be there. And I think that really impacts me personally is our actions and our behaviors, you know, in the, in the States can impact what happens in other countries and how people live their livelihoods based on what we want. And it's so easy. You go to the grocery store and you can see which country fruits are from. And I've certainly many times gone by fruits that are from Costa Rica. And as Costa Rica is a place that I've been and I've seen those banana plantations, that immediately makes the connection local and relevant to my life. I always tell the kids, yeah, next time you go to the store, because a lot of times we're cutting pineapples from the plants down there when they're ripe and we're eating fruit when it's ripe down there. And yeah, it's I'm different. Saying, you guys understand what it takes to get that fruit to our, they don't, you know, everything's green, everything's, 
it, it's not even near ripeness. It's not the way it's even intended, you know, but like, you know, we're talking about, we go to the grocery store and we just expect at any time of the year, I should be able to get a pineapple. I should be able to get bananas. I should be able to get whatever, even locally, you know, we, when our things are not in season, we still, you know, everyone talks about garden fresh tomatoes, but you know, when it's winter time or the season's <laughs> over, we still go to the store if we want and get tomatoes. Yeah, and there's very little that's more relevant to people's lives than food. I mean, that's the, here comes one of the many nature puns, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Golden orb weavers are hard to miss on Costa Rica's Caribbean slope. They're also remarkably similar to some of the larger orb weavers back home in Ohio. Well, moving from one nature pun to another nature pun, we're going to be using the upstream-downstream imagery a lot in this discussion. And the Costa Rica trip is downstream from a larger project that you're involved in. And we're going to talk about that. It's the Project Stream. And a big part of that is getting students out of their comfort zone. And this is something that you mentioned in our prior correspondence. It's probably easier to achieve that when you're taking students from Ohio to Costa Rica. What were some of the specific ways that students really felt out of their comfort zone on this trip? Well, we've already mentioned the turtle stations. So just the uh, places we stay, the lodging itself. Mm. Get to the turtle stations, you can only get there by boat. It's actually right on the beach, but we drive through a banana plantation. We take a boat because the van can't get any farther, and we go through some of the densest forest there is. It's untouched, and that's essentially why they put this station there. And so when they constructed the station, it was, you know, the bare minimum for people to be able to stay and keep most of the bigger things out, but a lot of the little things get in still. <laughs> I said, I always tell the kids, we're going to the rainforest, you know, it's known for biodiversity. There will be bugs. We'll see a lot of insects, a lot of spiders, a lot of ants, and we'll see them every day. Every day we'll see them. So you have to get used to it. It's kind of like, you know, the first time we see like leaf cutter ants, oh my gosh, we stop, we look at them. They're amazing. Yeah. Some kids are freaked out, you know, especially if they are standing in their in their path and they get bit a little bit on their feet, but then, you know, by day 10, they're like, we've cut our ants, don't step on them. You know, they just keep going. And it's definitely fun to see how the kids, um, how they grow and they get accustomed to things. Oh, there's a spider there. Oh, we got to watch out. There's a giant spider. And they're like, oh, I don't know a spider. It's not even sometimes worth mentioning, you know, it's just funny how they get accustomed to those things. Yeah. If memory serves on the Caribbean side, there's a, spider called the golden orb weaver or something similar to that and if if i'm not mistaken they're not i, I don't think you would say that they're small nor are their webs particularly small so <laughs> one of the places we actually stayed i lost count how many there were they had like yeah. a weather vane on top 
building and there had to been at least 150 of them. I was in my glory because I love arachnids, but the kids were like, what? That's crazy. And they stay up in their webs. I'm like, it's fine. They kind of stay there and chill. So it's not like they're going to be showing up in your beds, but they could. Yeah. So after the turtle stations, we went down to Baragua Rainforest and stayed there. That's Mm -hmm. where Laura's talking about. So all around our, our camp was, you know, just orb weavers everywhere you know the size of your hand and, and they're very beautiful actually and they don't bother you at all but as we hiked through the forest there it's also hey we got to watch out for for um for um bullet ants you know it, <laughs> it's gonna you know and, and again the first time you see one it's like oh. and then eventually it's like okay they're just like they're they become wildlife spotters instantly yeah well it comes naturally and certainly in as you described a more exotic location like costa rica where biodiversity is incredible tropical america it's a lot easier to get out of your comfort zone you went on this trip with five students even though you had intended to go with 21 but in your regular work during the school year you obviously work with many more students than that on a day-to-day basis and you're still trying to work to get them out of their comfort zone and what are some of the ways that you can do that just in a local setting in their own community Believe it or not, just taking the kids outside has about the same effect as walking <laughs> around Costa Rica. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of kids don't grow up the way that I grew up, which is outside. Like I played outside every day and, you know, that was my playground was in the woods out behind my house. But a lot of kids these days don't go and play in nature and they don't experience or see all of the creepy crawlies that I was accustomed to. So it's like a nature walk, even in Ohio, you know, you flip over a log and they're like, what is this? It's looks like it has horns on it. It's some kind of beetle larvae, but they're Mm -hmm. convinced it's going to stab them and pinch them and, you know, bite them. And it's, it's about the same effect really as taking kids to Costa Rica. Um, This, this year provided extra opportunity even more so because we were looking for the best way to keep kids safe while being in school, because we were in person um, full time. So what we did, we have a courtyard at our school. So we, you know, took out the dry erase board, we threw our notes on there and we we had class outside as many days as we could, just whether it was lecturing or, you know, we might've used the outdoors or we might not have, might've just been a regular assignment, but just being outside was getting the kids out of their comfort zone, you know? So a lot of times it's even, just the style with what we teach, you know, we know, and I know just sitting here and listening to a lecture and looking at a PowerPoint all day, is not the way to go. The kids after spending so much time on Zooms and everything else, you know, it's like the last thing we want to do is just make them stare at their computer all day. So, And that sort of answers my next question about just why it's so necessary to get students out of their comfort zone, particularly teens. You know, they're getting close to adulthood. They're getting close to going on into the working world or post-secondary education. And, you know, in some ways, maybe it's a very privileged thing to say is that I need to get out of my comfort zone or, you know, we need to get out of our comfort zone. Well, that means that you live a very comfortable life. And is, is that a disadvantage? I mean, is life too easy for us in many parts of North America? I, I couldn't agree more. We, we have comfort is, yeah, we're, it's a huge problem. Um, that's all kids want. They want to be comfortable. They want the, just, just tell me what to write down. And they get so <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> so that's part of it. Uh, I'm going to chat. I want to know what you think. So, so being uncomfortable is, is that's how, 
how you grow. That's part of, you know, us as being involved in the master's program that we were. And we always, first period is usually, a lot of times we're, uh, you know, we're like, oh my God, I'm nauseous. We're trying something new. You know, even as long as we've been teaching together, we just take lessons, we rip them apart. We go, we can do better. And then we're doing it for the first time. It's very uncomfortable because we don't know how good it's going to be. We don't know what the outcome is going to be or how the kids are going to react. And so we definitely practice what we preach. So it's fun in the hallway afterwards, convening and going, well, how'd it go? I don't know how to go with you. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's also really important for the kids to be uncomfortable in learning new cultures and working with people that they normally haven't ever had the opportunity to work with before. Sure. You know, taking kids to Costa Rica you know, they get out of their comfort zone because we don't speak Spanish. A lot of the kids are maybe in a Spanish class or two at high school, but when I'm like, we're like, okay, go ahead, try out your Spanish. Oh, it's really hard for them. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really uncomfortable to try to put themselves out there and seeing how other people live is also a really great way to grow as a human being and grow as a person and say, oh, like I can understand different viewpoints because I've lived it. And even in Ohio, you know, one of our goals is to get kids working with researchers and doing new activities. So meeting new people, collaborating with new people, maybe not just my classmates working together, but working with, you know, Scott's kids or working with some fifth graders or bringing in some local scientists to try to teach them some things about the topics we're on. It gives them different viewpoints and different opportunities that I think helps them grow too. Have you ever seen or observed students to have quote unquote culture shock within their own communities? And maybe it's different from the traditional understanding of that term where you go to a different country and you get culture shock, but where just even right at home, they're like, oh my goodness, this is totally different. Hmm. That's a a good one. (laughs) I don't know. Scott, would you agree that sometimes I feel like our class is kind of like culture shock to them in the sense that we're not just here to give you the answers and this is how you do step by step by step. It's kind of like, let's talk about it. What are the options? Science isn't always black and white. It's always gray. And there's really not just one viewpoint and one, you know, it's, it frustrates the kids because it's not just here's an answer and this is how you get to it. It's what do you think? Let's prove or disprove and let's look at evidence to support or refute these things. And that sometimes is, challenging for them and frustrating. I was going to say, we started something two years ago and we just, we just called a weekly discussion. So it was usually a topic, you know, we would give them a topic on Monday outside of class and they would have to answer some questions. But then on Friday we would have, we would literally circle up. We would combine our classes sometimes in the auditorium. Sometimes we'd pack into a room and we just have a, we would have a discussion on the topic and, you know, it was always try try and do topics that there was no right or wrong answer, or there was a side because it's all about picking sides these days. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's about talking those sides out, understanding this viewpoint versus this. And, and you know, one of our, fa- our favorite ones, probably the first one of the year, Phoebe and Phoebe and Ross, we show them the clip from friends and it's, it's a debate on, you know, Phoebe doesn't believe in evolution. And then Ross is coming mm-hmm. back, but it's science and they have this, back and forth throughout the episode and we you know we show them those clips and then and then we talk about it whose side are you on bb or ross so it's interesting the kids come out and you know they they get they show a little vulnerability some sometimes too 
And it's so true. It is all about sides, at least in a lot of popular media, including some of the mainstream media. It's this side versus that side. And it's nice to, you know, as Laura pointed out, find the gray. Because even in science, I mean, we talk about is this species different from this species? It's like, well, a Bengal tiger is different from a cicada, but a blue-winged warbler and a golden-winged warbler are kind of sort of different, maybe not quite, don't worry about it, it's all good. A lot of people have trouble with that last part, the it's all good part. (laughs) Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. If you take your students on an early morning walk along Mill Creek in the aptly named Mill Creek Park in Northeast Ohio, you'll get acquainted with more than a few Orb Weaver webs. Well, at least the first person in line will. So a big part of the framework of your teaching is from Project STREAM, and STREAM comes from STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, the R for reading, the A for art, so bringing in the creativity, the innovation, the critical thinking, and as we continue upstream, bringing that pun back to life, a lot of your work comes from the framework of Project STREAM, and could you just give us a basic rundown of sort of the gist of it? What is Project STREAM all about? We actually started this program called Project Stream with Josh Boyle, and he's from the Environmental Collaborative of Ohio, which is like a nonprofit in our area. And we just started brainstorming and talking to him about what was missing in our hmm. teaching experience. And we realized nature was a big part that was missing. And it actually all stemmed from a conversation with the kids asking about where apples come from and what's the point of an apple because part of our standards is about you know reproduction and we were trying to get like elude the kids that apples are there for reproduction for apple trees and there's seeds in them and they were like why is there apples for us to eat and then we just started asking more questions like well where does it come from an apple tree what part of the tree the branch the roots there was a huge disconnect with even just understanding the point of an apple and you know they thought the apples were there for people to eat and that was the only reason so that made us realize we have to incorporate nature a lot more into our curriculum we have to be teaching kids not just about nature but our local environment because we have no idea what's here we have no idea what's here we have no idea the connections that there are and what's better than just teaching science out of the textbook and actually going outside and seeing those things in real life so this is kind of how Project Stream All came to be. Yeah, so part of that too was, I mean, we ourselves went through a naturalist program through the local uh, Ohio State University Extension branch because obviously we wanted to learn more ourselves, but it was about making those connections. And, and then again, when we bring kids to Costa Rica, it's also those kids we spent, there's, there's cool stuff in Ohio too. We just, you know, I just go in my backyard. I could go out every day. Um, we use the iNaturalist app a lot. Oh, it's awesome. Um, yeah, that that that's a big part of the project is them going out. We have this uh, wooded area in the front of our school. So that's where we tend to explore. And it's like, what's out there, you know? And that's when they start going crazy and trying to, and they're 
trying to document all this stuff on iNaturalist, but that's that's what it's a part of. They don't even, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know this was here or, you know, there was a great time when one of Laura's students actually found a green ash tree in that wooded lot and it got marked as, you know, endangered. And we didn't, yeah. you know, it was like, yeah, you know, which led to the emerald green ash borer, which was a, you know, invasive species, you know, wiped out so many of the ash trees. It's been a huge problem. Yeah. But we have this tree here in our wooded lot. So how important that was for them to discover. Yeah, it, it's amazing the reactions you get when you just go out and do a bio blitz in your local area. And as I mentioned, I'm in southeastern Ontario. It's a slightly different forest zone, but a lot of overlap with Ohio. As I, as I said earlier, if I went to Ohio, I would feel very much at home. A lot of the same trees, a lot of the same insects, birds, etc., One that always comes up for me is antlions. A lot of people have seen antlions narrated by David Attenborough in Africa, and they don't realize that antlions have this global distribution. And I mean, there's nothing much more dramatic than a whole antlion show. When you see an ant fall into a pit and then the antlion starts throwing sand back up and the ant's trying to get out, and usually they do get out, but if they don't get out, and what happens at the bottom of the pit, like Boba Fett for any Star Wars connoisseurs out there, and <laughs> guilty as charged. But, um, you know, that that's one of the big ones that stands out. Are, are there any others where just students are completely dumbfounded to learn that like this species lives here and is maybe even common? Again, it's, it's super common, but even the mayapple plant, which yeah. is just this little, plant, you know, fairy, oh, you know, I saw this once and we have a local park that kids, Mill Creek Park, and they're like, oh yeah, I went there once when I was six and I think I saw some of these, or they call them fairy umbrellas. <laughs> and then, you know, even going further, I go, well, did you look underneath? And they're like, what? And I go, go ahead. And they're like, look at this flower. Oh my goodness. I didn't know I had flowers. It's like, so even just looking at something from what, not even looking close at it, getting them to look closer at things. And then they really start to, you know, just, whoa, this is so cool. But I always think of May apples because they're everywhere, but kids sure. didn't even know about them. <laughs> I, this year was especially, we have in a wooded area, there's a very small stream from like runoff from the parking lot. And some of the kids are really bent. They're going to catch this frog. They saw a frog and they are going to catch it. And that's what <laughs> they spend most of their days doing in boots, with nets, like they had plans there. It was very strategic. And one of them eventually caught it. But in the meantime, I was like, instead of just trying to catch this one frog, how about we look and see what else is there? And they found dragonfly larvae in the water. You would have yeah. thought they caught a boa constrictor. They're screaming. They're, oh my God, get over here. What is this thing? They're screaming the top of their lungs, acting like this is the craziest thing they have ever seen in their entire life. And I'm like, yeah, you guys remember talking about this in like seventh grade, talking about water quality and about different, you know, macro invertebrates that you could see living here. And you know, that can help assess the quality of the water. And they're like, no, I don't remember any of that. You know, so it's, I'm like, we got to get them out here every year as much as possible to show them and have them assess and do these things in real life. It's just so fun to hear the screams. I'm like, it's either good or it's bad. <laughs> either yeah. way, they're finding something funky, you know? A reaction of any kind is good. Yep. <laughs> Are there any other surprises in student engagement that have popped up? I mean, a apart from finding species that are super funky even though they're common and just part of the local landscape have there been any other things that have just kind of given you affirmation that this project is the way to go well we actually um as much as i hesitate a lot of times we actually had uh 
worked with Ohio University and had them create an assessment for us um, to evaluate the success of the program. So even with the limited activities um, in the past year and a half, um, one of the biggest responses overwhelmingly was the kids just, they all said they learned more outdoors, you know. We didn't really assess what they learned, but they just said, I, I learned a lot more outdoors and it was specifically related to iNaturalist. So at least meaning, hey, I learned what was out here, which again, just making that connection. And as a teacher, like just seeing that, that data itself, I mean, it's anecdotal when you take them out there and the bell sure. rings and you got to come on guys, it's time to go. And you're dragging them back in and, you know, they want to be out there. It's pretty plain to see. And then that's where our job comes in to make sure, yeah, we're, we're still covering our standards and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we're, we're making a, a bigger connection as well above the so-called curriculum and what the state says we should teach our kids. <laughs> I think too, the kids were always like, this was, we did a lot of surveys and you said, this is the best project of the year. This is the most fun project. And to me, learning should be fun. Of course. You get kids more engaged. I'm having fun. You're having fun. We're all learning something, you know, and it's kind of like with Costa Rica, you internalize, everybody internalizes something differently. Each kid might make a different connection outside that you had no idea they could or didn't have, or, you know, you're just unaware of. So I think it's really empowering to have kids go outside and contribute to science as a body of knowledge and say, Hey, we don't know what's out here. We need your help. Let's try to figure it out. And we also get a lot of kids too, you know, during the project that, you know, even though that the at home stuff doesn't, they're like, oh man, I saw this thing in my yard. I took a, it was the biggest spider I've ever seen. And, you know, they're, they're doing it outside of school too, which when you know, when your kids are coming up to tell you what they saw, you know, at home, then that's really big too. For sure. Especially for an eighth grader. <laughs> Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. It doesn't take much for the shoes to come off and the pant legs to get rolled up. No one seems to mind the odd soaker either. We're going to go downstream thematically again, but before we do that, we'll go upstream, I guess you could say, to the... Uh, proverbial headwaters and in your correspondence with me you noted that sort of the genesis of this approach to teaching project stream and your day-to-day -day teaching and these trips to Costa Rica started at the well-known project dragonfly at Miami University it's based in Oxford Ohio green teachers had a long-standing relationship with this wonderful program and it's an education reform initiative uh, tell us a bit about Project Dragonfly, especially for those who are maybe hearing about it for the first time. I guess we're talking a lot about dragonflies, but that, that's good by me. Yeah, Dragonfly is uh, it's a master's program uh, through Miami University of Ohio, and it centers around, in the summer, there are field trips, field trips? No, there are field studies. Field studies, that's the, yeah, that's the master version. There are field studies um, where each summer you get to pick a different location. So over the course of your two and a half years, you get three trips in the summer and then you do online classes the rest of the time. But focusing on global conservation, 
Um, but a real big part of it is as you travel and do your online work, a lot of the work is implementing projects in your own community. Place-based education. Right. Scott started the program and then I came along as a newbie teacher and he's such a great mentor that he got me to enroll in this program as well. And I must say it definitely not just changed our teaching practices, but it definitely changed our lives. Were there any aha moments? Ironically, we'll be traveling back to Baja, Mexico this summer for the Stars to Sea program. That's a different story. Uh -huh. um, but my first, my first trip was in 2012, and I went to uh, Baja, Mexico um, on the Sea of Cortez. And again, I'm already, I have enough years in teaching. This was for additional, I was like, instead of getting us just taking graduate courses, I'm like, I might as well get another master's degree. And I wanted to do something with that requirement of teachers to get, you know, additional, additional professional development and education. So I don't even remember if I got a flyer or how I saw it. And my wife's like, go for it. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm already in my third. This is way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> nah. I'm married. I have kids. I'm like, why am I doing this? So I remember at the airport, I'm just like, this is, this is nuts. I don't know why I'm doing this, but so glad I did. So I'm standing on the beach in Baja and it's night, full moon's coming up and it's low tide and I was by myself. And then I, all of a sudden I've taught tides for, I don't know how many years at this point, as the full moon continues to rise, the high tide is coming in. And all of a sudden I go, it's not the, I'm telling myself as many times as I taught this, you know, it's kind of like, hey, you idiot, it's not the moon and the water moving, it's the earth, the earth is rotating in. And I was just like, I had this epiphany where if I had my students here with me from my class, this would be so much easier to teach at this mm -hmm. point. So it was just into that first trip that I'm like, this, this is what education is. Because even though I had taught tides and I understand tides, of course, living in Ohio, you don't really know what a tide is. <laughs> I was actually seeing it and realizing like, yes, this is what a tide is. And if I could have my class standing behind me, I could easily point out what's happening and why, why we're now experiencing a high tide as it's happening. And wow. so I think from them point on, I even bring up all my, all my journals that we had to do. We always had, we had to do a lot of journaling. So yeah. it was, that was it. How to get kids, how do I create an experience like this for students? So that's where it all began for me. Powerful. How about you, Laura? Well, one of my aha moments was when I was in Thailand and part of the program there was studying uh, Buddhism and conservation. So we stayed with some monks uh, up in the mountains. And one of the things we were doing was we were planting trees with the local community and the monks were talking about how it was so important to get community, especially the youth involved in this. And the whole reason they were planting trees was to combat climate change. And, you yeah. know, this being six years ago, you know, climate change wasn't really a big hot topic. And I was like, people in Thailand all accept climate change and they all understand it. And they're all trying to do something for it. And they're getting little kids involved and, you know, families involved in this because they realized the impact it was having on them. And they talked about, you know, we're having a drought right now. It's supposed to be the rainy season and we understand what's happening because of climate change. And it's really important for this activism to occur, not just with us, but to teach the younger generations as well. And that was kind of my aha moment was 
it's not just going to be me trying to save the world. I got to get students involved. I got to get families involved. And we have to do as much as we can impact as many people as possible. And that ties back into community connections and place-based ed. And you've made that a big priority with Project Stream. In reaching out to communities, what have been the reactions from community members, from business owners, researchers, people in the working world? How do they react to working with students? It's been, it's been po- yeah, that's that's a tough question because uh, at this point, there hasn't been a whole lot of support. Um, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's been tough to make those connections, especially the last year and a half. Sure. Um, but that's, you know, part of what we would like to do. You know, a, a park is willing to, there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get kids on a field trip, to get them here or there. So a lot of times that's why we just spend our time on, on our school grounds, you know, but parks, local parks seem to be willing to reach out. But um, as Laura's, you know, Laura is also a graduate of the, the program. It, it, sometimes it's difficult to find the like-minded individuals. And, you know, that's why Josh has been so important with the Environmental Collaborative of Ohio is someone out in the community who's, who's reached out and is willing to help us make these connections with our students. I think it's, you know, this year was definitely challenging because at some point we weren't allowed to have guest speakers. So we try to do Zoom mm. calls and, you know, we had somebody from Costa Rica actually Zoom with our classes because we couldn't, you know, take the kids out on field trips and see things outside. So it was like, it's been challenging, especially when people are like, oh, I don't really want strangers coming into the school and talking with my kids during yeah. you know these times. So, you know, we've been working with Josh and taking our naturalist class that we've taken, we've made some connections there and I'm hoping to be able to reach out to other people and get guest speakers more common and maybe even have them come outside with us and show us things out in the woods. Well, it certainly sounds like having that point person, having Josh on your side out in the community is pretty key. So, you know, for anybody listening, who's thinking, you know, how can we replicate this in our community? That's certainly, that's what I'm hearing at least is that's something really important to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's he's been besides him himself. Him himself, he has a lot of experience in his own right with what he's doing. Um, his wife actually came out to help us with a stormwater project on our school grounds. We had some issues in our parking lot and things like that, so we did a project with our kids where she was able to come out. That's her expertise. But he also has, you know, those other connections. You know that going forward, we're working on, you know, having a forester come out, having someone who works in soil and water conservation and just things like that, that the connections he's also made over the years. So it helps alleviate some of our stress as teachers, you know, besides, you know, trying to make these connections ourselves, it's finding and having that person that already has a lot of those connections. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, green teacher is involved in another one it's called earthy chats and you know what how about i let my co-host jade harvey barrel tell you the rest take it away jade thanks ian hello all indeed we'd love for you to join us for earthy chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. 
all of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. In just 20 minutes, four dragonfly nymphs have been caught and released. In the nearby undergrowth, it looks like a mixed flock of songbirds is moving in. So from the headwaters downstream, looking forward more into the future, obviously the past year and a half, lots of disruption and a lot of plans that you had for 2020 were delayed. Now that things are opening back up and there's a lot more hope, what else are you excited about? Well, some of the work that we did this past year, um, we actually had some trail cams um, oh, out in some natural areas. Yeah, so we were we were even able to, you know, that was something we could do remotely. So um, Josh would actually get the SD cards for us, and we just upload them and create folders for the kids, and the kids would go through and try and ID what they saw. And then that was shared with naturalists in the park. So that was part of it. So hopefully, you know, now in the future, besides the trail cameras, now we can actually go to those places, you know, actually take field trips. That was, you know, one of the big parts of Project Stream was securing the funding for field trips, which we got. And now it's about now that we can do it, let's take these kids out into the community besides just being stuck on the natural areas around our, our building and our campus. Yeah, trail cameras are one of my favorite toys in the whole wide world. It, it's like just the anticipation. You put the SD card in and, you know, the images start to populate and you can kind of see you're like, oh, is that a coyote? Is that a, you know, raccoon? Or I do some environmental consulting field work here in southeastern Ontario and like bears are fairly common, which a lot of people don't realize because you don't see them. But on a trail cam, you do. Anything else uh, lined up for the future? One of my goals is to have a lot of professional development time for other teachers so that way they feel comfortable and they kind of know what tools and resources we have to be able to take their kids out and do project stream activities. You know, we want to get fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, and eighth graders all involved learning outside because one of the things that we saw from our survey is kids said, yes, I wish I did this earlier. I wish I had more experiences like this. And I think that is just telling of, you know, where we need to go. It's going to drive you. What's going to inspire you the most. And it's taking them outside and learning outside. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. Part of it is getting teachers out of their comfort zone. And, you know, we've had some discussions. We've had some professional development on, on a small scale. And, you know, some teachers are willing more than others, but it's, it's almost like having our own students. You know, I, I can go out there and pick up a bottle. Laura can go out there and pick up or recycle, but we it can't just be individuals. We need a collaboration. We need as many people on board as possible. And, you know, the more people we get involved, the better it's going to be for the kids. You know, as so I say to the kids, it's none of this is about us. You know, it, this is about the world that you're going to inherit. And, and you need to be aware of these things. The sooner you're more you're aware, the the more action we can take. 
like those uh, to reference your previous podcast, just a couple episodes of those, those three guys from, from the high school in New York, you know, yep. it was, I, I love listening to them. It was very, you know, it gives you a lot of hope, but it's also, you know, hearing that they haven't gotten anything, you know, they never received any kind of education about anything until what junior year, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's, that's what we really have to have to hit. We have to get these kids, you know, more involved. And again, just locally, because that, that's where the biggest impact is going to be. And certainly most listeners of this podcast are very much acquainted with this. They've probably read all about place-based education and the value of getting people outside. But what you mentioned is so true about how you have to get other teachers involved. And it can't just be the odd individual educator who's kind of out in the middle of a meadow all on their own doing this it has to be a paradigm shift and that's where the bigger discussion comes in and it probably has to start in teacher education programs more programs need to adopt the ethos of project dragonfly and in many ways it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel we have to go back to our roots i mean anyone who's read about biophilia and there's lots that's been written about it it comes naturally literally it comes naturally to us (laughs) absolutely it's been promising for us because obviously we're science teachers seems to be the easy go-to, you know, but we have had some success with our, our fifth, sixth and seventh grade teachers, you know, in the science department, you know, so it's about going there and then expanding, you know, you know, you can definitely turn it into a history lesson. You can turn it into a math lesson. You can turn the outdoors into any lesson and you'll find hopefully the kids will be more engaged that way. You know, a small idea, you know, that how to better your classroom and you can really turn into something big. But as it gets bigger and bigger, you need more support and you need more help from others to actually create that paradigm shift. And, you know, we're in that process in which we're like, okay, we need more people involved to help create this shift. And we're trying to get you know, data to support us because we're good scientists, you know, so we have these Mm -hmm. surveys sent out to our students um, to say, does it matter? Is it impactful to you? And now that we have a little bit more uh, information, we can go to other teachers and say, look at what they've done so far. Look at how they reflected on this experience. One student said, this experience, the bio blitz has taught me more about my home than anything else ever has. To me, that's so impactful and so multifaceted. It's not just science. It gives me goosebumps, you know? I think that that's the information we need to help shift our thoughts on education. It needs to change. Well, you've heard it there. A call to action, spread the word. There's much to be done and there's not a lot of time yet to do it. Well, this has been a really illuminating discussion. We've gone upstream, downstream. We've been in Costa Rica. We've been in Ohio. We've been in the Mississippi and the Great Lakes Basin. And it's, it's a lot to unpack. And even for most listeners, yeah, even though for most listeners this is well-known, it is not well-known far and wide. And that's something that we all have a responsibility to change. And hopefully we can make that happen. So thank you so much, Scott and Laura, for sharing your insights, your stories, and putting out that call to action that we all need. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. The Songbird flock is led by three or four chickadees, locals most likely. In their midst is a daintier, more active bird. It jumps into view for a split second, 
enough time to determine that it's a chestnut-sided warbler. Don't they migrate to Costa Rica for the winter? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I have to ask, um, do, do either of you speak Spanish with, with your trips down to Costa Rica? <laughs> Very little. Poquito. I, I would say zero, for me, but I'm trying. I'm always <laughs> trying. I need, a, I need more vocabulary. It's one of the things I'll get down eventually, you know, we'll get there. Yeah, I know a lot of the animal names like Legarto and some of them are the same like Tarantula. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes. Are you fluent then? Or are you? Oh, I'm certainly not fluent. I can speak a bit. Yeah, as I say, poquito. Uh, learning the animal names is kind of an easy way to start. But yeah, I still have a very long way to go.